Good morning. morning. Welcome this Transfiguration Sunday to Queen Anne Lutheran Church, proclaiming the love of God in Christ for every person. Whether you're a first-time visitor, a long-time member, or somewhere in between, we are glad you are here to worship with us this beautiful morning. A few reminders before we begin our service. As always, we invite you, please, to silence your phones as a gift to yourself and to your neighbor. We ask you, secondly, to remain masked throughout the service as well as in fellowship afterwards. Uh, We have additional masks out in the narthex if you require one, but uh, at the very least, please be wearing a surgical mask during uh, your time with us today. Finally, we're going to continue our practice of sitting or kneeling during the intercessory prayers after the Apostles' Creed. I'll invite you to do either of those, whichever your preference at that time. An audio recording of the service, thanks to Connie, is uh, available uh, each week. So if you wish to share this with a friend or would like to hear something of the service again, it will be posted online. On Transfiguration Sunday, we normally focus on the transfiguration of Jesus, and we should. Witnesses to the glory of God in the face of Jesus reflect that glory to the world. But Jesus was not alone. Today's reading suggests the number of characters who are transfigured could be up to six. Who are they? And what relation do they have to each of us? Can we be transfigured too? Please rise as you are able for our gathering hymn, How Good Lord to Be Here, number 315 in the Red Hymnal.
The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And also with you. In peace, let us pray to the Lord. For the peace from above and for our salvation, let us pray to the Lord. For the peace of the whole world, for the well-being of the Church of God, and for the unity of all, let us pray to the Lord. For this holy house and for all who offer here their worship and praise, let us pray to the Lord. Help, save, comfort, and defend us, gracious Lord. is the feast of victory for our God. Alleluia. Lord be with you. Let us pray. Holy God, you are the mystery at the heart of our lives, one beyond our knowing, yet we see your glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Transform us into the likeness of your Son, who renewed our humanity so that we may live for one another as you originally intended. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, 
now and forever. Amen. Please be seated. The first reading is from Exodus 34. Moses' face shone with the reflected glory of God after he received the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. The sight caused the Israelites to be afraid. So Moses wore a veil to mask the radiance of God's glory, taking it off when he spoke directly with God. Moses came down from Mount Sinai. As he came down from the mountain with two tablets of the covenant in his hand, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, the skin of his face was shining, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him. And Moses spoke with them. Afterward, all the Israelites came near, and he gave them a commandment, all that the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. When Moses had had finished speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take the veil off until he came out. And when he came out and told the Israelites, what he had been commanded. The Israelites would see the face of Moses. The skin of his face was shining, and Moses would put the veil on his face again until he went in to speak with him. Word of God, word of life. Please join in singing the Psalm 99 responsively as noted in your bulletin.
Second reading from 2 Corinthians 3. In his debates with the Corinthians, Paul contrasts the glory of Moses with the glory of Christ. The Israelites could not see Moses' face because of the veil. But in Christ, we see the unveiled glory of God and are transformed into Christ's likeness. Since then, we have had such a hope. We act with great boldness, not like Moses, who put the veil over his face to keep the people of Israel from gazing at the end of the glory that was being set aside. But their minds were hardened. Indeed, to this very day, when they hear the reading of the Old Covenant, that same veil is still there, since only in Christ is it set aside. Indeed, to this very day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their minds. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And all of us, with unveiled faces, seeing the glory of God as though reflected in a mirror, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, the Spirit. Word of God, word of life. Please stand, arise for the reading of the gospel. Gospel according to St. Luke, the ninth chapter. Now, about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took him with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly they saw two men. Moses and Elijah talking to him. They appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions were weighed down with sleep, but since they had stayed awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Just as they were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, knowing what he said, not knowing what he said. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were terrified as they entered the cloud. Then from the cloud came a voice that said, This is my son, my chosen, listen to him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent. And in those days, 
told no one any of the things they had seen. The Gospel of the Lord. Please be seated. Grace to you and peace from God, the source of life, and from Jesus, who is the Christ of God. This sermon is meant to answer one question. What does the resur- I'm sorry, what does the transfiguration have to do with me? What does the transfiguration have to do with me? I have a confession, and it's difficult for me to share it with all of you. While I may be decent at reading and writing, I am terrible at math. Myra knows this already. (laughs) Things started out fine in elementary school. Addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division all came to me with great ease. By middle school, I had even conquered fractions. Yet once I got to high school algebra, and maybe this is the experience some of you have, everything fell apart. Whenever I tried to solve a complicated equation, I struggled. I would actually get headaches. My thinking would would get fuzzy. So much so that math became my worst subject. Because of my poor math skills, which I lay before you now, therefore, I'd like to ask your help today when it comes to counting. Here's my question. How many transfigurations do you think occur in our three readings today? How many transfigurations do you think occur in our three readings today? In other words, how many characters change, either outwardly in terms of appearance or inwardly in terms of disposition? Let's start with the obvious. The transfiguration of Moses, according to Exodus 34:30, our first reading. When Aaron and the Israelites saw Moses, it says, the skin of his face was shining and the people were afraid to come near him. This instance seems pretty clear. Something about Moses, namely the skin of his face, had been changed. So much so that it frightened his fellow Israelites. That's our first transfiguration. And yes, I can even count to one. Next, we have, of course, the transfiguration of Jesus, according to Luke 9, our gospel reading. And while he was praying, it says in verse 29, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became dazzling white which is why the color for today, liturgically, is white. Here, the transformation in question affects not only Jesus' face, it changes the appearance of his clothes as well. What happens to Jesus is the second transfiguration, therefore, we have in today's readings, right? Two. This is where things, however, get tricky. Do you notice any other transfigurations directly as in the case of external appearance 
or indirectly, as in the case of internal transformation associated with our three readings? If so, here's my question for you. Who else gets transfigured? By my estimate, and again, maybe you shouldn't trust me since math is not my thing, we have not one, not two, not three, not four, not five, but at least six possible transfigurations in or related to our three readings for today. Yes, you heard me correctly. Unless my math is wrong, I count six. The transfiguration first of Moses, the transfiguration second of Jesus, plus four others. Now, in a moment, I will re unveil the remaining, unveil, <laughs> I'm hungry. <laughs> I will unveil the remaining four. I have this amazing capacity, by the way, to mess up everything I try to cook. So only I would try to unveil something, whatever that means. <laughs> I just bought this little egg thing for making breakfast and I even messed that up. You just put egg yolk in the cups and you put it in this device and it's supposed to make these egg patties, but they didn't come out that way this morning. I don't know why I'm telling you this, let's back up. In a moment, I will unveil the remaining four. But first, let's explore what the word transfiguration means, as well as the significance it has in the broader story of Jesus's life and ministry. The transfiguration is simply the name given to an event in Jesus's life where his physical appearance is temporarily changed before three of his followers on a mountaintop. So it's the change of his physical appearance as well as his, or including his clothes, that is at the heart of transfiguration. Three of the four gospels feature an account of it. Matthew and Mark describe it using the Greek word metamorpho, from which we derive the term metamorphosis in English. Luke uses a different word in Greek, which means simply became different. Either way, something changed with regard to the appearance of Jesus when the disciples had what Matthew 17, 9, as well as one of our hymns, the first one we sang today, calls a vision of his transfiguration. That's interesting, isn't it? A vision. Theologically, this vision has two implications. First, it harkens back to the original five books of the Old Testament we call the law or Torah as represented by Moses. So the Jewish teaching was that Moses received the first five books of the Bible, the law, directly from God. It also harkens back to another segment of the Old Testament we call the prophets as represented by Elijah. This is what the Jews of Jesus' time would have understood as the Bible. So Moses and Elijah represent scripture, something equivalent at the time to about two-thirds of the Old Testament as we know it today. And if you want further indication of this, go to a text like Romans 3.21. Paul doesn't refer simply to scripture, he refers to the law and the prophets. That was their Bible at the time. 
In the gospel account of the transfiguration, the appearance of Moses and Elijah, who talk with Jesus, confirms his continuity with Jewish tradition. It looks back. At the same time, it also looks forward, insofar as it foreshadows the resurrection. In fact, there are some scholars who think that it was actually first a resurrection account that was then placed earlier in the narrative. So how does it look forward to the resurrection? Remember the description of it according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 51? We will not all die, he says, but we will all be changed. Changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. On the last day of the old creation, in other words, our appearance will be transformed when we wake up with a new body in the resurrection. Something Jesus' transfiguration glimpses by way of anticipation. Much like the horizontal beams of the cross, the story of Jesus' transfiguration accordingly points in two directions. First, to what God has done in the past. Second, to what God promises to do in the future, all of which place Jesus himself at the center. That's a nice way, I think, of remembering the significance of the transfiguration. Now that we have defined the meaning of transfiguration, which again simply refers to a change of appearance, as well as its theological implications, it links the past and future to the person of Jesus, we can return to our original question, the mathematical one. How many characters in today's readings are transfigured? We already know the first two answers. According to the first reading, Moses was transfigured. According to the second reading, rather the uh, gospel, Jesus was transfigured. But what about Elijah? What does it say about him? Well, we have no story of him being transformed outwardly or inwardly in the Old Testament, unlike the story of Moses. Nevertheless, Luke 9.31 tells us that the disciples saw two men talking with Jesus, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory. That makes not one, not two, but three transfigurations, even though it raises another question. Why would Elijah be transfigured here even if according, to the Old, or if, according to the Old Testament, he had not previously been transfigured? Well, like Moses, Elijah climbed Mount Horeb, also known as Mount Sinai, where he encountered God. So maybe there he was transfigured. You know the story. It's one of my favorites. Elijah runs 40 days and nights to find God at the top of Mount Sinai. 40 days and nights means a long time, a long distance. He gets to the top of the mountain and encounters God who says to Elijah, what are you doing here? I love this. Talk about anticlimactic. It's a, it's a, for me, it's a really funny story. But it could have been that he was transfigured in the Lord's presence there. Also like Moses, Elijah's death remains mysterious. Nobody knows where Moses is buried. In Elijah's case, the prophet never died. You remember the account. According to 1 Kings, Elijah was taken up to God in a chariot of fire. He ascends to heaven, 
a symbol of his special significance. Perhaps this implies transfiguration. After all, in heaven, he would be close to God, at least as the Israelites of Elijah's time believed. But these are just guesses. Whatever we think, Luke raises the number of transfigurations now to three. Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. So who's next? Is there any other character transfigured or changed in today's story? How about Peter? You remember him? The disciple who sank into the water, apparently due to his lack of faith? The one who denied Jesus three times before his death? But you also know how Peter became the leader of the church in Jerusalem, a man whose faith and humility, according to Catholic tradition, led him to a martyr's death upside down on the cross. The reason being, Peter didn't feel worthy enough to die as Christ did. How could any of that happen without Peter experiencing an inner transformation, or more specifically, an inner transfiguration? If so, then doesn't Peter's transformation teach us something? Doesn't it show us that instead of merely being a moment, as it is in today's story, it is also for some people a process whereby we are slowly changed? However you answer this question, we arguably have a fourth transfiguration occur in relation to the story of the gospel, one where Peter changes from being a coward to being a person of courage in Christ. So that is implied, perhaps, as a fourth. What about a fifth? I can keep going. I can't count, but I can keep going. What about a fifth? I'm running out of characters in the story, so it has to be, has to be somebody left. Do you ever wonder what happens to God in this story? Sure, the transfiguration of Jesus offers us a glimpse into the future of humankind, the destiny that awaits us all. Yet it also has been understood, and I'm quoting here the HarperCollins Bible Dictionary, as an instance of Jesus' true form as the Son of God, listen to this, breaking through his form. That's really powerful language, isn't it? Jesus' true form as the Son of God breaking through his human form. Let's explore it. If God descends completely and totally into human life as the Word made flesh, so much so, and I'm treading on the line of heresy here, but bear with me, so much so that God's glory momentarily becomes visible in the transfiguration of Jesus, then what happens to God in the process? Is it merely coincidental that this is the last moment in the Jesus story where God speaks? Or could it be that God is no longer up there beyond the clouds in the splendor of isolation? That's the heretical moment I'm talking about. Historically, Christian tradition believes that God never changes. 
But could it be in this story that God actually does? That God goes, as it were, through a kind of metamorphosis from being above us and removed to being fully present with us in and through the flesh of Christ. God no longer beyond the clouds, in other words, in the splendor of isolation, but down here joining us in our struggles. That would certainly explain the silence of God when Jesus dies on the cross, and it would also justify us in speaking of the metamorphosis of God. In Christ, to summarize, God above us has become God among us, which is why we call him Emmanuel, Matthew 1:23, God with us. The Lord of the skies, as it were, has become what one philosopher calls the fellow sufferer who understands, the man of sorrows, the suffering servant. God has come to us. This is the gospel. Nothing can separate us from God's love in Jesus Christ. If my math is correct, therefore, that leaves us with only one remaining transfiguration. Can you guess who it is? Ours. Exactly. Ours. According to 2 Corinthians 3, our second reading for today, Paul affirms that in Christ, we too are, quote, being transformed into the same image of God's glory, from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, the Spirit. Now, this is the clincher. Paul uses the same word we find in Matthew and Mark for transfiguration, metamorphao, which English translations simply render as being changed. To them, I say, no, 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 no. The better translation is we are being transfigured. Only it's not as obvious as what happens to Jesus. So, pastor, how can we tell? In what way, as the body of Christ, are we being transfigured? Well, the answer should come as no surprise. Through the imperceptible moments of grace where our hearts are slowly changed such that we no longer simply care about ourselves, but for what Paul calls the common good. That's transfiguration, inwardly. It appears when we seek the well-being of our neighbor instead of simply giving in to our native selfishness. When we live for others instead of only for ourselves. That is the way God slowly transfigures each of us on the inside, reminding us, as was the case with Peter, that the inner transfiguration is not a single moment, but a process, indeed a lifetime. When I was little, I remember in the hallway of my family's house, a picture on the wall that somebody gave my parents after my brother was born. There was uh, serious difficulty with his birth. And it was the picture of a little boy in a cowboy hat, and it said at the top, God isn't finished with me yet. That's the transfiguration for each of us. God working within you slowly, imperceptibly, gradually, 
opening you up more and more to others instead of being focused solely and totally on yourself. Martin Luther puts it perfectly. The transformative grace of God is, quote, not instilled all at once, he says, but it begins, makes progress, and is finally perfected at the end through death. That's why, if you were a jerk as a teenager, you have hope. <laughs> That's not in my notes, but I just wanted to say that. <laughs> okay, so this is where I really need your help. At the beginning, I said there are up to six possible transfigurations associated with today's readings. Can you remind me who they are? Moses, Elijah, Jesus, Peter, God, and us. That's six, right? All right. If that's correct, we have a problem. The number six in the Bible is not a good number. <laughs> it represents incompleteness. The number 666 for the beast in Revelation, for example, uses three sixes, which means incompletion, but also three of them, which, means, which is a number for God, which means completion or perfection. So it's complete imperfection, the very antithesis of God that constitutes the nature of the beast. God created the world in seven days, not six, which is why Jews to this day refer to seven as God's number and why we still say lucky number seven. So I want God's number for this list. So how can we change six into seven? That's harder for me than changing water into wine. You recall what I said about being us? about us being inwardly transformed, right? How Paul says we are being transfigured in Christ from glory to glory. Well, maybe this is an easy fix. We get seven if instead of us, we say you and me. Ta-da! So there you have it, a perfect number, God's number. Today we've learned that there are seven transfigurations potentially associated with our readings. We've already named them once more for review. Moses, Elijah, Jesus, possibly Peter's, possibly God's, yours and mine according to Paul. How's that for my pretty fancy arithmetic? Amen.
Please remain standing as we confess the words of our faith in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, holy Catholic faith, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. For the prayers of the church, we invite you either to sit or kneel, whichever you prefer. The Spirit of the Lord is poured out upon us in abundance, emboldening us to pray for the church, the world, and all that God has made. Transform us by your greatness, O God. Send us down the mountain to share joy with all people. Make us agents of change, confident that your hope will overcome despair, and your goodness will help us resist evil. Lord, in your mercy. The mountains and the valleys sing your praise. Dazzle us with your presence in every landscape. Bluffs built by ancient gla glaciers, canyons carved by flowing rivers, flat horizons with uninterrupted views, and sands shaped by ocean tides. Lord, in your mercy. You love justice and establish equality throughout oneness in Christ. Empower leaders of local governments, community nonprofits, and grassroots campaigns. Bless them with gifts of courage, integrity, creativity, and sound conscience. Build up safe and joyful communities where all people may thrive. Lord, in your mercy. Be present to those who are in distress, especially the people of Ukraine and those facing ecological disaster in Madagascar. Give patience to those waiting for answers. Here at home, grant hope to those who have reached the limits of treatment. Give passionate hearts to those who accompany loved ones through illness and uncertainty. Lord, in your mercy. Today, we see the glory of the Lord on the mountaintop. This week, we enter the wilderness of Lent. Bless all who prepare and lead us in worship during this change of season, pastors, musicians, and all who contribute to our worship life, our greeters, ushers, assisting ministers, counters, and acolytes. Lord, in your mercy. For whom or what else do the people of God pray? I offer thanks for the successful heart surgery of my brother-in-law, Paul, and his continuing recovery. Lord, in your mercy. Hear our prayer. 
God of loving kindness, we ask your prayers for Christine, for Betty, for David, for the family of Pam, for Ken, Ben, Sherry, Jean, Abatosh, Mulugeta, Mindy, Peter, Sherry, Lee, Jim, Deb, Barbara, Mary, Jan, Barb, Carol, Ruth, Denny, and Hildy. Be with all those named, or the families of all those named, if bereaved. Be present to each of them, Lord, in your mercy. Blessed are they who listen to Christ's voice in this life and now rest in him. Transform us from the glory into glory and give us your peace that we do not lose heart. Lord, in your mercy. Hear our prayer. Since we have such great hope in your promises, O God, we offer these and all of our prayers to you in confidence and faith. Through Jesus Christ, our Savior, amen. Please rise now as you are able for the great thanksgiving. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is indeed right our duty and our joy that we should at all times and in all places give thanks and praise to you, almighty and merciful God, through our Savior Jesus Christ, who, sharing our life, lived among us to reveal your glory and love, that our darkness should give way to your own brilliant light. And so with all the choirs of angels, with the church on earth and the hosts of heaven, we praise your name and join their unending hymn. In the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took bread and gave thanks, broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body given for you. Do this for the remembrance of me. Again, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks and gave it for all to drink saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you and for all people for the forgiveness of sin. 
Do this for the remembrance of me. Lord, inspire us to work for your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we ourselves forgive everyone indebted to us. Save us from the time of trial and deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen. If you are partaking this morning in communion, I invite you at this time to take out your communable and receive the bread and wine at my direction. Christ is among us. Receive the bread of life. This is the body of Christ broken for you. This is the blood of Christ shed for you. Let us pray. We give you thanks, gracious God, for the love you show us in this meal. Send us to bring good news to a hurting world and to proclaim your favor to all, strengthened with the richness of your grace in your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated briefly for announcements. Once again, welcome one and all to Queen Anne Lutheran Church. It is really nice to see you here this morning. If you are new to the congregation, please fill out a connect card in the pew rack. If you would like to receive prayers, etc., you can do so as well on that card. A note for visitors, if you are joining us for the first or second time, please be sure to have left us a contact phone number or email when you uh, entered and signed in so that we can uh, reach out if uh, there's anything needed for contact tracing. Uh, today at 12.30, this is exciting, we're going to celebrate Archbishop's, Archbishop Tutu's life and legacy with the film Mission Joy. You can join us for that in the conference room. That'll occur at 12.30, so we'd love to see you there. 
This Wednesday, we have a full calendar from uh, 11 to 12. We have our Ash Wednesday service here in the sanctuary from noon to one online via Zoom. We have our first Wednesday's Bible study. We're covering the book of Jude, which is a very brief text. Should be an interesting conversation. Then at 7.30 p.m., we'll have another service for Ash Wednesday here in the sanctuary. Thereafter, we will be having uh, services via Zoom midweek, beginning March 9th through April 6th. And we're going to be focusing there as well on Archbishop Desmond Tutu. Why? Because in my reading of his work, he provides us with spiritual insights that might be helpful for our own time of reflection during the season of Lent. Barb has put together a really wonderful um, devotional for this series. You can uh, take a copy if you'd like on the Narthex table on your way out. I really encourage you to join us if you can. Again, this will be by Zoom beginning March 9th uh, through April uh, 6th at 7.30 p.m. Um, And then uh, I'm going to invite forward Candy in a moment, but I did want to say something about the Zoom uh, um, Lenten uh, brunch. The um, uh, request is that you pick up a communable on your way out or at least have bread and wine available at home because there will be uh, communion done via Zoom uh, at the end of that breakfast. So please, uh, please do that. Finally, uh, I did want to say something about uh, email. I'm receiving a number of, um, of responses saying that my email is going to junk mail or spam folders, uh, and that's happening a lot. Um, as you also know, my email has been repeatedly compromised, and I've every time changed the password, but we have serious problems there. So I'll be looking into this week uh, finding Uh, perhaps an alternative that's more secure. If you ever get a request for me for money or for a favor, that is not from me. And the easiest way to tell is if there are punctuation or grammatical errors. That is not from me. That would never come from me. And I would never want to be associated with that. That's almost as bad a crime as as the scam itself. So... All right, we have several announcements. First, I'd like to invite forward Candy. So the question always is, what is Lutheran World Relief doing? And that's the same question we get no matter what the emergency is. Yes, they are sending quilts. Yes, they are sending the kits. We have worked hard. You know, when you take only a suitcase, if that much, out of your house, you don't have time to think about towels, soap, something for the children to continue their education with. Oh, that baby needs diapers. That baby needs help. Those things are being shipped over. But there is also a humanitarian fund for emergency relief. If you want to contribute money through Queen Anne Lutheran Church, write Queen Anne Lutheran Church on the check and slash Ukraine or emergency fund for LWR. Either one will get it there. Um, had this little blurb in the Northex that came through on my Facebook page today talking about what they are doing. LWR has a warehouse overseas, so they are already on the ground helping. So if you want to contribute, contribute to LWR, be sure to do so. Thank you. Good morning. Nice to take my mask off for a second. Uh, Just wanted to be sure you uh, 
saw in the bulletin that next week at 10.15, in lieu of a prelude, you're invited to join the choir and me to preview uh, the setting of the liturgy that we'll be singing during Lent. It's setting nine in the hymnal. We started to introduce it before the pandemic, and it's been a while. Um, the, the thinking uh, when we resumed in-person worship was to go with a very familiar setting of the liturgy that, that many of us who gather here have known for a long time. We spent quite a while with that setting now, and uh, Lent is a wonderful time to change the musical setting of the liturgy. Uh, this is perhaps a little more contemplative uh, vibe to the music. So um, to get uh, acquainted with that a bit, uh, please consider joining us at 10.15, 10.15 next Sunday in lieu of the prelude. Thank you. I wanted to highlight just two final things First of all, you probably noticed that we are saying a different version of the Lord's Prayer. We did that for the duration of Epiphany based on several sermons I gave. The text itself actually comes from the Gospel of Luke, which I consider to be the social justice gospel. This gospel is really uh, focused on the uh, restructuring of society in a way that would uh, lend equality to people who are otherwise disenfranchised. Uh, so when we talk about forgiveness of debt, in that case, we're probably speaking literally of how people were invited to forgive the debts of others as a sign of God's emerging kingdom. It's pretty powerful. Here's the good news if you don't like it. Next week for Lent, we'll revert back to the uh, language we normally use for the Lord's Prayer, but that was put in there just so that you have a heightened awareness of uh, the nuances of this prayer and what it can uh, or did mean back in the first century. The last thing I wanted to highlight was our, our special forum coming up next week. It's a four-week series featuring another Queen Anne Lutheran favorite, Dr. Matt Whitlock, a good friend of mine from Seattle University. The series is called Crucifixion Theater of the Absurd. And what Matt's going to talk about is how each of the writers who wrote about crucifixion had to confront the absurdity of Jesus' death. How could the Messiah of God die in such uh, a shameful, ignoble way, and what lessons might their understanding of the crucifixion teach us when it comes to um, facing suffering ourselves. So I'm really hopeful you can join us for this. It'll be in the conference room, but we will also have it available via Zoom. And if you have any questions, you're welcome, of course, to speak with Carol Ann, the chair of Christian Ed, or myself. With that, I invite you please to rise for the benediction. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord look upon you with favor and grant you peace. Our sending hymn, O Lord, now let your servant, is number 313.